0: Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed Podcast. Got a full crew tonight. Mike coming to us from Colorado, Jason in Utah. And I am in Wyoming. And this is a show that's two years in the making. But first of all, how you guys doing? Everybody fair and well? We're getting ready to head south. So it's going to get cold and then we can go warm up. Head south. Oh, to Austin is what to you're talking Austin, about. Yeah, to pre- Precision Camera.
1: Which will probably be done... By the time this airs, but still, it'll be nice to go warm up a little and then.
0: <laughs> yeah, if it, if it does, we were we were warm while the rest of. But here's cold the up.
2: deal: it's November first, and it was seventy degrees here today. Yeah, I can't say
0: yeah. that it feels like November, but
3: it's always eighty degrees here in South Carolina. So. I don't and that—that
0: that is why this has been two years in the making. That's Doug Gardner. <laughs> yeah coming to us from South Carolina. And when we first started contemplating this conversation that we're going to have tonight, uh, Doug and I were filming sheep uh, in Northwest Wyoming. And Doug had just finished prior previously that spring, just an epic sequence uh, for a major TV show, America, the beautiful it's out now, so we can talk about it. Mention that's it by right. name, right?
3: You don't have to be, you don't have to hide anymore.
0: <laughs> so, welcome, Doug. Welcome Thank back.
3: Thank you. It's great. Yeah, to
0: be he's back. still listed
2: on the on the website as a guest host. Yeah. So, he's never left. Yeah, I never really. We left. always got him by the hook. We always he's, get a hook in him.
0: He's been MIA for a long time, and it's not that he's missing. He's just busy. Very busy. So, you've been all over the place since, I mean, that's two years ago. So, mm-hmm. just give us, just, some of the locations that you've been working in. Yeah, it's been. Oh, let me, let me help you out with that. Hmm?
2: (laughs) The swamp. Uh, Yeah. You've been in the swamp?
3: swamp In the swamp, pretty much. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much that's where I live is the swamp. No, I get, I get to venture out of the swamp every once in a while, but uh, I will say it seems like the last three years has just been a blur to say the least. Um, uh, Lots of, different projects going on for different people, um, you know, been spending a lot of time in Louisiana for a variety of different shoots, uh, bears and alligators and uh, bobcats, um, different different types of uh, alligator behavior and bear behavior for different programs. Um, doing, you know, I was telling y'all earlier, a piece on bighorn sheep that's, that's coming up that's not finished yet. Uh, bobcats in Florida of all things. Uh, Waterfowl on the Atlantic Flyway, um, all up and down the Atlantic Flyway from uh, the Eastern Shore down to Georgia. Um, so yeah, it's just been—I mean, it's just been wide open. Um, you know, Mike and I just uh, finished the first part of a, a conservation piece um, up up in the, as far north in Montana as you can go, actually. Uh, basically on, you know, ungulates migrating out of the mountains, you know, and down into the, uh, the valleys and stuff. So, um, so yeah, it's just, it's it's kind of been a wild ride, you know, um, just busier now than I ever have been. And I I thought during the pandemic that, you know, it was going to be kind of interesting how any of us got work, but, um, that's when it really exploded, uh, pretty much because people couldn't travel. And so, uh, so yeah. So, uh, you know, a handful of us was kind of taking the whole workload for the entire industry.
2: You guys are going to hear a really cool story about that coming up, about the pandemic and how this whole shoot went down. But the cool thing about the swamps is it's amazing. It's a, just a, you think of a swamp and you think of, eh, it's dark and dingy and, and it's not that at all, right? I mean, we were asked to shoot some stuff that looks dark and dingy and we're like, ah. I don't think you can. This place is beautiful. It's too, too
3: beautiful. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they kept, the producer kept saying we want, what was the word that she kept using that we kept laughing about? Um, ominous. That's what she said. Because she, she said, I was going to have a t-shirt made that says ominous. So every time you look at me, you know what I want. I want ominous. So we're going spending hours in the swamp every day. And we're going in and out through with boats through the cypress. You got Spanish malls hanging off of, thousand-year-old cypress trees and you got resurrection fern, you know, in full bloom all over the place. And it just, I mean, birds everywhere. And like, how do you shoot something ugly and ominous? You know, it's, everything's beautiful. This is going to be tough. So, but um, no, they just, they want everything scary. Just like any film, they want the big scary wolf and the the bear, you know, the ferocious bear, that that's the kind of thing they want, Snarling bear. Snarling bears. Yeah. The swamp that I'm actually working on a personal piece on, on swamps, on cypress swamps. And basically my mission is to, to change everybody's thoughts on what a swamp is all about. Um, everybody thinks this is dark, dangerous, malaria ridden. Snake-infested, just horrible place, and it's totally opposite. I mean, yeah, there's dangers there. There are snake, poison snakes, and there are alligators. But you know what? Um, you can you can get hit by a drunk driver tonight. So you got a whole lot lot more chances to to be injured by that than a poisonous snake in the swamp. So um, so that's I'm kind of trying to actually show the beauty of the swamp and all of the different aspects of, um, it's, it's such a varied ecosystem. That's the other thing people don't really understand about swamps. So that's my goal. That's what we're working on.
2: It's impossible to, to make them look ugly. They're just amazing. Especially when you have access on a boat and you can get in those way off areas and you think, Oh man, it's going to be you, who knows what you're going to run up against, but you get there and it's just beautiful. And you get a cool sunrise or a cool sunset and then all of a sudden it's three times what it was when it was midday
3: One of the, the the most difficult things i run into is someone will say especially in a swamp situation especially they will go okay we won't we won't alligators fighting or bellowing or breeding or whatever they're looking for a specific behavior so when you're looking for a specific behavior you know you're kind of laser focused on certain areas to be at a certain time you know finding you know, these alligators that that you think you may have a good chance at, at capturing that behavior so you're kind of really narrowing your your vision I guess you should you can say to what you're looking for and you're having to, the whole time you're looking for just these alligators fighting or whatever the behavior is you're passing up all of this amazing stuff I mean just, you know, and that's where I get myself in trouble because I'm like, I'll just stop and get get a couple of these nice scenic shots or, you know, some cool macro shots, kind of a slider move. And all these things, I was like, oh, this would look awesome with the drone. So I go up with the drone and for long, I burned up the whole day and I hadn't got a single thing that I, I really needed other than filler, really. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's hard to, to stay focused in a in a place as beautiful as a swamp. And anybody that's, that thinks swamps are, are ugly, they, they haven't. They really haven't experienced it. They're just kind of going by what the media has made them think.
2: We had big time problems. And last time we were in Louisiana with whistling ducks, right?
3: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Slight distraction.
2: (laughs) Doug's a, Doug's a waterfowl, a certified waterfowl nut anyway. So then you add whistling ducks in the swamp with pretty light and breeding activity. And he was lost for a couple of days.
0: Yeah. A lot of, a lot of whistling. A
3: lot of whistling. Yeah. And I mean, they were just like on every tree, you know, sitting on beautiful resurrection fern. Uh, They would let, I mean, they would just let the boat pass within feet of them. They were nesting in cavities. I level to us and babies popping out of the trees. And I'm like, oh my God, please cancel this shoot so I can go shoot this. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to stay a few weeks. (laughs) That's what I was
0: going to say that. It's easy to get distracted by the biodiversity in the sagebrush grasslands. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's probably one, one hundredth of the biodiversity that's available in a swamp. So I can't, I can't imagine that the ADHD wouldn't run rampant for a a wildlife guy.
2: For sure. I think he could spend a lifetime in the swamps. I mean, Doug doesn't do that because he gets to Alaska or South America or whatever, but you could just be the swamp guy if you wanted to.
3: Oh, for sure. For sure. And and it seems like, I mean, you've seen this as well. When you do one film on something, um, as soon as that airs, all of a sudden it's like for the next two, three years. And it seems to be a two or three year pattern. It's just like, that's all they want. It's like you get different producers from different production companies calling you up saying, I saw you do this and I saw you do that. And, you know, we want to do the same thing, but we want to, you know, do a different twist or we have a, a little slightly different storyline that we want to follow. And, and that's what happens. And it just, you know, it just keeps going for me as far as swamp stuff, because, you know, more swamp stuff I do, the more I get. Um, and it's nice to, it's nice to get breaks to, to do stuff like the bighorn sheep and, you know, I just got done with a moose rut, um, in Wyoming. And, uh, so yeah, so it's, it's really nice. Uh, so I just, I did a big thing on white-tailed deer in the Appalachians, which was a great break. I love white-tailed deer. I love any ungulates, any of the ungulates, you know? Um, so yeah. hold up,
0: hold up, hold up. You were just here for the moose rut? <clears throat>
3: Not this year, last year.
0: Oh, okay. You, yeah, you're lucky.
3: Just about got in trouble, Doug. <laughs>
0: okay. We're about to have a whole different conversation.
3: No, I, I about I about got killed there three times, but we won't get in that conversation. It wasn't because Doug did anything wrong. It was because I had a producer that I was working for. Anyway, we had prayer meetings several times. Let's put it that way. I literally had, I mean, he was like a little 25-year-old spring buck, you know, and I literally got to the point after I'd cussed him out three days in a row, I grabbed him by the shirt and I said, you do not understand. I literally have more experience in the field years wife, than you have been alive on this earth. And he's like, I got it. Like, I don't <laughs> know if you do or not. You keep in situations where damn moose is barreling down my back. He, I'd be set up and he would basically – Either push the bull into me, or run out in front of me and drop a GoPro literally five feet in front of a a, a bull moose. Some Darwin <laughs> Award stuff there, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So
1: I was going to say that's collection. the
0: kind of stuff that gets you uninvited,
3: right, Doug? Yeah. Doug I'd have been filming all of that. <laughs> you never oh, know me. what you could have got. <laughs> Believe me, I, I when it, when things like that would happen, I would go as wide as that and 20 would go which was 50 millimeters and let it roll <laughs> <laughs> well and I, I, I mainly did that to cover my ass because uh he was about to get us both in trouble and i wanted to be able to say it wasn't me <laughs> uh, anyway we, we'll talk about stuff we can actually air <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there'll need to be some editing there yeah <laughs>
0: Yeah, this is not my therapy session. So, Doug, the big, I mean, obviously, you know, you're a fun guy to talk to. You just kind of let you roll because you get so much time out in the field. But the big reason we want to talk to you tonight is about the sequence that you filmed the, the spring of the pandemic. And just to back up to what Mike was talking about, I mean, this sequence came about because you kind of got stuck in one location and only because you were already there because they weren't going to let you travel. Right.
3: That's correct. Yeah. The, the kind of, well, we'll back up a little bit. The, the initial shoot was to, um, to try to capture the behavior of Louisiana black bears um, emerging from their dens with their, their newborn cubs. Now, that doesn't sound like an interesting behavior because we've, we've all seen, you know, documentaries of bears emerging from dens. No big deal. The thing about the Louisiana black bear is they live, obviously live in the Louisiana swamps. The only place for them to den are in these thousand to two thousand year old cypress trees um, that have cavities in them. So what they do is they actually go up into these, they find a cavity that's big enough for them to get into. And it's usually where lightning has has struck a tree, a cypress tree, and it has burned out the center, but the tree is actually still alive. It creates these huge cavities uh, down in the bottom. So they'll crawl up in them and go down to the very bottom of the the base of the tree. But biologists don't know, none of them have ever seen it. Um, They've never, it's never been filmed. They don't have any data on it because there's no way for them to really to really um, uh, record this. Um, it takes so much time to get. They don't know how the mama bears actually get the cubs from the tree to dry ground because what happens is in the in early December the the swamp in the bayous of Louisiana it will be mostly mostly dry. Um, so it'd be maybe a little bit of water, maybe a couple inches, or maybe just a little bit of damp mud. But uh, for the most for all intensive purposes, it's, it's going to be dry. And so when she goes up early December and climbs into that tree to hibernate, she's there for the for the remainder of the winter and into the spring. Well, throughout the winter and at, into the early spring, the water level in the swamp continues to get deeper and deeper and deeper. And so when they uh, it's time for them to emerge from the tree. Um, by that time, the Mississippi River is starting to, to flood outside its banks, which it does every year about the same time. And it's from, you know, um, snow melt out of the Rockies and uh, other watersheds up in the uh, northern part of the country, all, you know, come down the river and make the river swell. The river swells way outside of its banks. And so when she comes out of the tree, uh, with her new three new th- two or three new babies, she's got five or six feet of water under the tree now. The land in Louisiana is so flat and low that one inch of water may cover a quarter of a mile of ground. So as you get another two inches, dry ground is now almost three quarters of a mile away. And so it just, you see how it rapidly eats up dry ground real quick. So five to six feet of water means there could dry ground might be two miles away or more. How does mama get these bears, these cubs from the tree to dry ground? Does, you know, A, or do they, uh, are they born knowing how to swim and they just swim there themselves? Uh, B, do, do they climb on mama's back and she just kind of ferries them across? Or C, do, you know, just mama carry him like a cat does a kitten. You know how a cat will grab the kittens by the back of the neck and just carry them around. Does she do that? You know, what's the answer? Nobody knew. And so that's what this film was, was supposed to to answer. And we did, we answered it. Let me back up a little bit. So the crazy thing about this, the way this whole thing went down was they, we had started talking about this shoot the fall prior to um the, the fall of 2019 and we were getting all of the you know all the logistics worked out uh where to stay uh, how long we needed to be there equipment um you know all the logistics that go along with you know food location when we've been working with the state biologists in louisiana the bear biologist um, maria davis we contacted her and and told her what we wanted to do, and she said, "Yeah, I think I can help you." And what what they do is, she goes out and collars bears um in the Tensaw Basin. The Tinsall Basin of Louisiana that is the highest concentration of black bears anywhere in Louisiana, and it's in the Tensaw Basin is a is actually. Uh, It's actually a fairly small area Um, You know, when you talk about the size of Louisiana and all the swamps that are available. But there's a real high concentration there. So she said, I have a project area where I have a lot of bears and I have a lot of collars out. And so over the past 25 years, she's been recording data about how her collars move throughout these swamps. And so what she does in the fall, she starts watching them. And she will go on the computer and she can track exactly where these collars go and how long amount of time that they spend in one location. um, You know, their routes, uh, food areas that they go through. And then when she sees the collar stop for a long period of time, like 24 hours or longer, she knows that that bear has is either a died or it has gone into hibernation. And what she told me, Listen, I, in December, she said I have a bear that has gone into hibernation, and uh, in it's on private property in the Tensaw Basin. It is a, a I think it's a thirty thousand acre private tract of land, and it was all like cypress swamps and owned by uh, a guy in Louisiana. She said it's the I've gone to this tree before. It's a beautiful cypress tree. It's it's a very filmable situation. You gotta imagine, you know, swamps are most swamps you have a lot of clutter a lot of brush in the way and vines and stuff and so you have to find those clear areas to to film in and um uh, and this particular tree was just like made for filming. I mean, it was a a big, very old tree, a very pretty cypress tree, didn't have so much brush around it that you couldn't film, you know, without maybe doing a little bit of pruning um, around it. So she said, I've got a bear that's gone into hibernation in this tree. Now this is early December and that's generally when they move, when they go into hibernation. She said, why don't you come to Louisiana and take a look at the situation. The bears will be, you know, in the den and um, let us know if that's, this is what you wanna do. So we did a recce trip to go and check everything out. We got there and she told me, she said, I'm going to do a, I, I will do a den inspection now. And then again, in early February, I will do another den inspection. And this is normal for all of my project areas. When I find a bear that, that a collared bear that is, you know gone into hibernation, I will do two den inspections. So she said, I will do one today and we'll just check, make sure she's healthy and everything's good. And I'll know exactly what her state is. So Maria climbs up in this tree and down head first in there with this bear, no bear spray, no gun, no nothing. And, um, she comes out and she said, she's good. I know this bear. Um, she is actually, she had cubs two years ago. So that means she is due to have cubs again this year. And she said, and I think that she is actually pregnant. I said, okay, she said, you need to go whatever, go ahead and do what you need to do. If you need to do a little bit of clearing now, if you need to set up a blind all that. So we did, we we cleared some bushes, we set up um, two blinds actually, Um, one on one side of the tree and one at 45 degrees on the other side of the tree. That way, when I got there, when I came back to actually film, depending on what the wind situation is, because wind is, means everything to a bear. Um, you know, they that's how they read the world. They, they don't, Their smell is, is incredible. Depending on what the wind was doing in the morning when I went out, I had some options about which blind I wanted to get into. So we, we built two blinds and got everything ready to go and we left. And the deal, when I put trail cameras up, uh, cellular trail cameras, Uh, watching the the whole, the way this thing goes, works is she said, generally based on my records, the, the earliest emerging dates for these for bears in our studies over the past 25 years has been, I think she said, March, no, April, um, like the second week in April was, was the earliest. And the latest was the end of April. You need y'all need to, I would get here about a week before the earliest ones on record. And that way you don't miss anything. And it's just a matter of sitting and waiting. So January, we, we we plan to do this. And of course, COVID had started, you know, started ramping up and it was the big, you know, all the talk and it started kind of going crazy about January. Right. And that's when everybody was freaking out. What we had done was they went ahead and paid. We had um, a lady uh, across the street from the cabin that I was gonna stay in. The landowner let us stay in his hunting lodge on on the property. And it was supposed to be me and five other people from the UK producer, assistant producer, two other camera guys. I think an assistant, they were going to be there. What we did is we went ahead and purchased all of the food that we would need, had it delivered to the cabin and we weren't going to leave the property at all. And then we were going to hire the lady that kind of maintains the, the lodge and stuff throughout the year for the hunters. Uh, we were going to hire her to actually do all the cooking for us. So we could come in in the evenings, you know, and the food would be ready and, you know, let her handle all that. So what they did because of the, because of COVID, they actually, they actually um, paid for her to go into quarantine for two weeks prior to us getting there. That way there was no chance of her being infected with COVID, whatever. So all of these, all of these logistical things had, been set up and ready. You know, we had the food, we had the place, we had cook, everything, everything, stuff we needed was or had already been delivered to the, to the lodge. And I was supposed to leave on March, I think it was the 15th of March and start driving out to Louisiana. So I always travel, doesn't matter whether the production has their own kit, I always travel with all my personal stuff anyway, because Mike, you know, as well as I do, you get there and how much personal stuff do we always have to end up using because they didn't bring everything or something breaks. So I travel with on my complete kit all the time. So I get to about Atlanta. I think it was just past Atlanta, Georgia. And the phone rings and they said, um, the shoot is off. This was the producer. And then they said, the shoot is off. I said, what do you mean? The shoot is off. And she said, well, you haven't heard. I said, no, I've been driving all day. I said, well, there's been a travel ban put in place and we can't leave the UK. And so the five of us can't get there. The shoot is off. Also, um, you know, all of the production houses were, were uh, being shut down. You know, initially it was like two weeks and then they were going to reassess. And then if we need, if everything needed to go and shut down longer, they would do that. But the initial shutdown was two weeks and said everything shut down we're just we're taking this whole thing off the off the books and i said let me make sure i understand exactly what you're saying i said y'all are not postponing this shoot y'all are actually axing the whole thing and she said yes because we don't know how the uncertainties of how long this is going to last and we just we just don't know what's going on and so yeah it's all it's done deal i said okay i'm on my way to louisiana then i'm going to film a bear i know there's a bear in a tree with cubs all the food's been paid for it. it's going to go waste everything is there and in place and i've got my equipment and i'm going to film a bear coming out of a tree with cubs and i'll let you know how it goes and you know in my mind so- i'm thinking you know if i get this We're gonna we're gonna talk.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So, Doug, what what time of year was that? I mean, what was? Roughly the date. I know you probably can't that remember was, the exact um, date. That was,
3: but... I think it was, it was either fifteenth or seventeenth of March, twenty twenty. Okay, that's
0: going to that's going to be important here soon when we get to the end of this story.
3: I think it was like, is the fifteenth or the seventeenth of March? It was whenever that first day they put the travel ban in place. So anyway, I continued I said, okay. They said, well, they said you can't do that. I said, what do you mean I can't do that? I said, I've got my own equipment, and y'all aren't going to do it. And everything has been done. And the landowner said, I can be there. So I'm going to Louisiana. And uh, they said, well, you got to understand you have no, no, there's no resources in case you get in trouble. You know, if you get injured or, or whatever, there's, there's nobody to help you. And our offices are closed and you know, you're not, you're not on contract anymore. And uh, I said, you know, I'm a freelance guy. This is the story of my life. You know, we always assume our own risk anyway. Every every day that we go out, I said, so nothing's different. I said, I understand. You know what you're saying, and uh, they said, well, be careful. So off to Louisiana I went, and after about the third day, I uh, was sitting in the blind. Uh, I get a phone call. Actually, I get a text, and they said, call us immediately. I was in a blind, so I couldn't I couldn't call until late that night when I got back. And they said, don't know what's going on, but you know, right now we are actually all the production companies, all the networks. I mean, in the natural history industry right now, there is 450 to 500 crew members spread out all over the world for, you know, 30 to 50 different productions. And everybody is scrambling to try to get all these crew members back to their home countries while they still can. All the contracts have been canceled. For some reason, you are the only one that has been allowed to stay on contract. Said so you are back on contract. So I was the only person at that moment that was actually working under contract for, for this production. And it was crazy because that's when, you know, all of the, all of the things that you normally do leading up to a shoot um, risk assessment and all these kind of things, you know, you got people, usually you got people there to help you. If you need assistance. Um, I didn't have any of that. Nothing. I was, it was, I was, other than the, the, the cook, I was the only person on a 30,000 acre track of land, a swamp. I was having to do this all by myself.
2: And you got to know, like with the BBC, when we go out on these shoots, they are very in tune with what's going on. Like we have to call every night when we get back, we'll call or text or something. Cause they want to know that their people are safe. You know, whether you're doing bears or alligators or swamps and snakes, whatever, they just want to know that you're back and safe and
0: ready to go out the next day.
3: Yeah. They are super, very, all very, of the production companies are very, very safety conscious.
0: Yeah. I've only been on one of those and I go, when I go, I mean, it's it's nothing for nobody to hear from me for 8, 10 days. And they're anal about making sure you're checking in all the time. And I don't think they understand completely that there are places where you can't.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, you got to understand, they have um, insurance uh, underwriters exactly. that are yeah. breathing down their neck. So, yeah. Sure. Um, they have to be, you know, crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's for sure. But, Absolutely. Um, but, yeah. So. I would,
0: I would, though, Doug, like to have been a fly on the wall on the Zoom meeting that led up to you getting called in the blind. And I think they probably started doing some calculating and thought this is going to be a lot cheaper if we just let him stay where well, he's at. and I It's think- going to be if he gets what he's after.
3: Well, that makes it, that makes a much better story, doesn't it? But I think actually what was happening is they said, you know what? Maria, the, the biologist, she called us and I forgot to tell you this. So in, in February, the beginning of February, she went out to do her den inspections again, and she crawled up in there and actually confirmed that the bear had cubs and that the cubs were safe and healthy and everything. And mama was too. And. And that, you know, they were still there and you should just stick with the plan and they will emerge at some point. The story about, you know, you're saying why, why I went back on contract. I think what it was to be honest with you is they felt like, so the cook is the only person of the public that I would be in contact with and she had been paid to stay in quarantine for two weeks. So we knew she was completely safe and I was completely safe. So I'm not going to see anybody. I'm not going to cross paths with anybody because I'm living in the swamp. It's not like I was leaving and going to a hotel. The lodge is in the middle. It's in the middle of this piece of property. So I literally get on a four wheeler every morning and drive into the swamp and then walk. And then i do the same thing every night coming out. So they they probably felt like I was the safest person on the earth at that point, you know? I wasn't going to get infected and I wasn't going to, you know, you know, transmit it to anybody else. So that's, that's probably the reason.
2: Plus all your food was there, all the logistics had been done. way yeah. had a schedule, right? Paid so for you it were done. it's all there and paid for.
3: I started sitting and and come to find out I did have even though they were closed, officially closed. And this production started out as a Nat geo um production by the end of the shoot it actually became a disney production which was really weird they were in the middle of uh, of actually acquiring uh nat geo at the time and uh, which was really weird because like you sign a contract at the beginning for nat geo and at the end your paycheck comes from disney you're like what but anyway even though they were offices were closed um the producer who still to this day she is by far the 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 Best producer I've ever worked for. Um, she's just a wonderful lady. Her name is Joe Harvey. If you ever get a chance to work with her, she is freaking amazing. She genuinely cared about you, your health, overall, how you were doing, the production, everything. She was just always, she was wa- watching the radar, uh, weather radar constantly. And she would be texting me like, hey, looks like you got an hour, you know, and you might have to get out of there. And so it was uh, was just a constant communication, um, which helps when you have nothing else to do in a blind for 14 hours a day. So, but yeah, 14 hours a day um, was kind of the the deal. So I would get up in the morning and I would be in the blind an hour before the sun rose. And then I could not leave the blind for any reason unless my life was in danger until an hour after uh, the sun set. Uh, basically pitch black dark to pitch black dark. And the reason for that was I'd gone all this, all this effort to be sure that they couldn't smell me, which you, you're not going to just, so you know, you're not going to hide from a bear's nose. That is impossible. You can, you can take steps to not be quite as offensive as far as smell, you know, um, or to startle them, you know, to a certain degree, but, uh, you're not gonna hide, you don't hide from a bear. It's just, it's, it's impossible. But the other thing was I definitely didn't want her to catch me going in and out to, from the from the blind. Basically the blind looked like a giant brush pile. So it was these little, little cheap Walmart pop-up hunting blinds, four feet by four feet by 50 inches tall. That's what I was sitting in, in the water. I had those covered with brush. The closer she gets to actually emerging from the den um, she will actually start sticking her head out of the den and looking around, you know, she's, It's not really a full hi- It's not a hibernation. Um, it's just more of a, it's more of a, uh, what's the, what's the term y'all help me toper tu- torpor torpor. Yeah. And so it's just a very lethargic state. Um, she's fully awake. Eyes open, and she would she would start coming out a couple of weeks prior to emerging. She would actually stick her head out. Sometimes she would climb completely out the hole, crawl down the side of the tree, just hold on to the tree and lean over and drink, and then go back into the hole. So I didn't want her to bust me, basically walking in. If I she caught me wading through the water, and she would go, "Wait a minute, there's something strange about that big brush pile right there." And so if if she ever caught me doing that moving in and out then when she went to emerge she may take the cubs around to the back side of the tree where i can't see anything and leave from that direction or she could move them to a whole nother location in the middle of the night which they do um and i found that out actually the next year um that they actually will move them completely in the middle of the night sometimes uh here i am starting out in the dark I basically would leave the cabin early in the morning on the four-wheeler drive about eight minutes. And then I would park the four-wheeler about 500 yards um, down a levee so that she really wouldn't hear the four-wheeler and wouldn't, you know, try to, again, keep the smell of exhaust down, that kind of thing. And I would leave that. And then in one trip, I would have to carry everything with me. In, those, in a set of waiters. Big lens, red camera, enough brick batteries to last 14 hours. So that's basically 14 uh, batteries, and they're not light. All my food and water for the day, uh, anything else I may need, tripod, uh, everything. And all of that's got to go in one trip.
2: Books and movies and DVD players, yeah, too, right?
3: Yeah, i got to have all the books and all that kind of thing. <laughs> Cheez-Its, uh, a, a lot of Cheez-Its. I lived on Cheez-Its. <laughs> Yeah. And so I'd walk down the levee and I would get to the point where I actually would have to step off the levee and start wading through the water. Now that is, this is the part that actually created a lot of problems for me It's pitch black dark and it's full of alligators and water moccasins. What I would do, it was so dark that I mean, I couldn't use a headlamp because again, if she sticks her head out, And, and, and it's so dark that I can't see if she, if her head's poked out of the hole, if she may be standing there watching me the whole time. I don't know that. So I didn't want to have a headlamp on. So what I would do is I would actually step down to the, to the water and I would put my face down as close to the water as I could. So I could actually see the reflection of the sky and where the kind of outline of the tops of the the canopy of the trees in the swamp, I could see that line and I could actually see the surface of the water. So if there was anything like a snake moving through the water or an alligator's head, I could actually see a profile, dark profile against the surface of the water. And so I would kind of check a five foot area and I would just move real slow through the water. And I put my face down low to the water again and check it again. And so it would take me about 20 minutes. Each morning to go 75 yards, and the, the blind was about 75 yards from the levee. I mean, and you don't realize until you're in a situation like this where everything is just perfectly still, you don't realize how much noise you actually make. The smallest little things, uh, I'm and I'm moving just you know an inch at a time through the water with waders on. And every little ripple sounds like a tidal wave out there. And so, you know, I'm just trying to be as quiet as, as I can. You get in the blind and then you start sitting and you're sitting all day long. You, like I said, you, the only, the only thing that I could come out for was if, you know, if my life was in danger for some reason, so lightning or, you know, another animal or something like that. So I was having a medical emergency. That's the only reason I could leave.
2: So hold on, before you go too much further, there's a couple of things. So you said earlier the blind was, what, 44 by 44 by 50 inches tall? Yes. Well, I don't know if anybody's been next to Doug, but he's, I don't know, what are you, like 6'1 or something? 6'2". 6'2". So he's a tall dude, right? So can you imagine sitting in this blind for 14 hours and you can't stand up because it's only 50 inches tall? And then also, didn't you, I think you. I remember you saying that you had like a little floaty kind of thing that you could put your gear on? So that when you are making your way through the swamp,
3: I use, any uh, I- anytime I work in the swamp, I use, well, it's, it's a decoy sled is what it is. It's basically a little plastic. It's not even a boat. It's a tub. It's, um, it's about 48 inches long and it's about 28 inches wide and it's about 12 inches deep and it's just thick, um, rubber, I mean you know, plastic is all it is, and hunters will pile it full of decoys and that way they can walk and drag it through the swamp. I can throw all of my equipment, everything, CN twenty, red, y'all everything in that and it'll floats it, you know, with plenty of freeboard. And that way and I just hold on to a rope as I'm walking through the swamp and I do it all the time, no matter what the situation is. And that way if I fall in a hole or trip over a stick, I just let go of the sled and it just floats around fine, unaffected. I'm the only thing that gets wet. And so that's what I, that's the way I would haul my equipment in every, every morning and, and out every night is with that decoy sled.
2: I just wanted to give everybody that picture. Cause it's almost like Navy seal. <laughs> But can you imagine being a Navy SEAL trying to hold your backpack above your head so your camera doesn't get wet? But you didn't have to do that. You no, had thank that God, I didn't have to do that. Decoy sled, but you still had to like travel at an inch per what minute or an inch? Yeah,
3: it, it took. It takes a long, long time, and it, you want to. You just kind of want to hurry up and get there, and you're like, no, you got to slow down. You got to slow down. You got to slow. Down. So it was always, it was always this. Everything you did was this conscious. Effort, You're just having to think about so many things. It was just, it was some, the whole thing was just an emotional roller coaster. I mean, just physical and mental. I'll tell you about. So every night when I would I would get in. Again, I don't have a crew now because the crew is stuck in the UK. I don't have anybody doing DIT. I don't have anybody handling you know any assistance whatsoever. And so, at get home at night after dark. I've got to rush and eat, supper, get a shower, charge batteries, download all the footage and back it up three times, you know, do all this stuff, have everything prepared for the next morning, ready to go, and then get up at four o'clock and do all this over again. You know, I'm, I would just find myself rushing, just just scarfing food down as fast as I could just so I could get that extra 15 minutes, you know, to, to sleep. And I would lay down the bed and you, you, like everything else, you got to, you have to kind of decompress for about five minutes before you actually start to relax, you know, in the bed. And I started going through this thing every night and it started really mentally messing with me. And I grew up and I I grew up and, you know, born and raised, still work in the swamps, you know, a lot. So snakes and alligators don't, I respect them, but I'm not really scared of them. But I started getting... To this point, where at night when i lay down in the bed, I would just constantly try to figure out in my brain, okay, what are you going to do if you, you know, if an alligator does grab you in the dark, you know, heading out tomorrow morning or coming out tomorrow night, you know, how are you going to handle this? You know, what is going to be your your protocol? And you know, are you going to go for the eyes? Or, you know, what are you going to do? And uh, if he grabs your arm, what are you going to do? If he grabs your leg, what are you going to do? I mean, all these scenarios go through your head. And then you, as you're looking at it, you know, thinking about it, you see, you know, teeth and mouth and water splashing, you, all these scary things go through your mind. Same with, you know, if I get by water, bit by a water and what am I going to do? I never could. When I, Every time I close my eyes, these scenarios would go through my mind. And this was happening every night. So I'm sitting here trying to decompress and relax and get to sleep as quick as possible, but I can't. And I actually kind of developed a phobia because doing this every night for 42 nights, you know, the same thoughts. And so, yeah, it just, it really kind of freaked me out. It, it messed, the whole thing messed with my head really bad, um, really bad.
0: That was the first time you alluded to how many days you were out there. Yes. What I was going to ask is, uh, so they, they make a plan for your physical health and obviously there were some concerns there because nobody really knew what to expect with the pandemic and that kind of thing. But also your emergency plan should something happen, but they don't really have a plan for mental health and you're out there by yourself. So they, you know, you got that TV show alone. Those guys, if they make it for a hundred days, they, they call it now. So you were about halfway there.
3: I was halfway there. Plus
0: you had all these other responsibilities. This is, this is kind of personal. This is kind of personal, but so uh, intermittently, you were kind of keeping in touch with the world through Facebook. You couldn't tell anybody where you're at or allude to where you were at. But then I would send you a text every once in a while, just say hello. And you could tell at about the 30 day point, your responses started getting a lot shorter. <laughs> so you were you were definitely. Feeling
3: <laughs> oh, I was feeling it for sure. It, it, it was like I said, it was an emo- it was it was an emotional nightmare is what it was it really was so it got to the point where <clears throat> so the first the first 22 days i didn't see i didn't see the bear at all but i could start hearing faint little whimpers of the cubs so i said okay i know they're in there and um then it started getting to the point and, and that like you said i i started Kind of doing a little daily, um, I don't know, just a little, little vlog thing. Just a, um, you know, recording, you know, what was going on that day. And you could definitely see. I think it was like you said, around day third, twenty-seven to thirty. You could see it was taking, oh, it was taking a toll on me. Um, you could tell I was severely sleep deprived. Um, you could see it in my eyes for sure. And that was one of my biggest fears was actually falling asleep because I didn't know, no one knew, um, how long, you know, this event takes place. Is this something that happens in a few minutes? Is it something over 20 minutes or an hour or two hours or overnight or what? Excuse me. As a matter of fact, I texted Maria one day and I said, so, what should I expect? You know, how long does this take? You know, um, it's all day event or what? She said. She simply texts back. At this point, you know more than we do. And I was like, okay. So <laughs> I was so scared. So there's that. Yeah, there's <laughs> that. So so, I so we got so that going for us. Scared that I would actually fall asleep. Just for a little quick five minute, you know, cat nap. I was scared I'd miss the event. And at that point, you would not know, was there anything still in the tree? Are they still there? Am I sitting here for days watching the empty tree? Or, you know, are they still in there? That messed with me. It's hard to stay stay awake for 14 hours when, you, when you're running on nothing and you're just mentally exhausted anyway. So, yeah, so doing this day after day. And I got to day 37. It was all I could do just to record that one little 45 second video. It's all I could do to stay awake just to, and to mutter out a few words and you can definitely tell it. It got to day 42. It's like I said, the only thing that I could leave for was if I was in danger or like a severe lightning storm. And we had been having lots of storms on Easter Sunday. Uh, we had, there was a, a huge tornado outbreak all over. And it it was kind of a squall line. that went up through Louisiana and through Mississippi. Uh, It was an outbreak of tornadoes all over both states. I was caught up in the middle of it. And we had two tornadoes come, well, one came right through the property. So within a couple miles of my location, one across the street in another farmer's field came through there. And then there were several within five or six miles. I stuck it out. I mean, I was just trusting that radar that I lived by that radar. You know, I would kind of play the radar forward and kind of backwards and kind of calculate how many minutes it takes me to walk out, how many minutes it takes me to get my bags packed, how many minutes it takes to drive the four-wheeler back to the house, all of those things. And so I had it kind of down to the point where, you know, I figured it take take me 37 to 40 minutes to from the time I want to start getting out the blind to the time I can get, you know, into the four-wheeler. We've been having all these storms. On day 42, it got, it got real. Joe is texting me, you have to leave now. And I'm looking at it, you know, on the radar and I'm going, I've got, you know, I've got about an hour and 15 minutes, I can still sit. And then I, then I have to leave. So I'm watching the radar and nothing's happening. It's getting windy and lightning is starting to pop all around me it had sprinkled a little bit of rain and then the rain came down real heavy but then the rain quit all of a sudden it it just got kind of quiet but except for the lightning and lightning was popping everywhere and i'm like okay i got to go i i cannot this is i mean it's popping close enough that i can feel it i'm at the base of a cypress tree Matter of fact, one of the tallest ones in there, I actually started zipping up the bag and putting everything away. And the last thing I ever do is actually put the camera away, turn the camera off and put that away. Everything else, you know, getting your lunch packed away and ba- dead batteries, put in the bag and, you know, just any little extra things, getting everything but the camera. Last thing is I look, peek out the blind one last time, just to make sure there's nothing there. And there's the hole is full of black fur. And I'm like, crap. Cause she would come out. It was at that point for the, for about two weeks leading up to that, she would actually come out and just hang out on the, on put her, go to sleep. She'd stick her head out of the hole and put her paws on the edge of the hole and just go to sleep for about 20 minutes. And then she would crawl back in or she would climb down and get a drink and go back up. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You can't do this now. You It's not time for now. <laughs> I got to get out of here. Uh, and also one thing it's important to say is that, when she would come out and just kind of take a nap and you, she goes back in, you wouldn't see her the rest of the day at that point. I mean, you just wouldn't see her. So I'm like, no, 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 baby, you, you got to get back in that hole. I said, cause I got to get out of here. And uh, it lightning popped one time and she kind of flinched and she dove back into the hole. I'm like, good. Took the camera off the tripod and I, something told me to have me to, to look back through the hole one more time. She's out of the hole coming down the tree. And I'm like, Whoa, whoa, whoa. So I put the camera back quickly, put it back on the tripod and it was, the camera was still running, but it was, uh, it was off the tripod. I lock it back on, get back on her. She goes to the water and starts to swim out a little ways and leave the tree. I said, Oh no, this is, this is it. This, you know, this is different. She hasn't let, ever left the tree before. And so I start filming it. She goes all the way across in front of me, goes to dry ground and spends about by herself spends about five minutes i don't see her and then all of a sudden i see her coming back so i'm filming her coming swimming back to the tree she gets to the tree she scampers up the tree she grabs the by this time by the time she gets back the cubs are screaming their heads off they think mom has left and they're all looking down out of the hole she goes up the tree she grabs one of them by the head pulls it off the tree and starts down the tree gets in the water with it swims all the way to the bank with it and she gets about she's you might as well call she's on dry ground I mean her feet were still in the water but she was there. She was not but two or three feet and she would have been on green grass and lightning popped and I saw her throw her head up with the cub still in her mouth and she hightailed it swam the cub all the way back to the tree, went up in the tree, licked it dry Came down, did it again, swam all the way across with the pup with the cup same cub, and took this time she took it all the way to the bank. She came back by sitting by herself. Now you got cubs in the tree screaming their brains out. And the one on the bank screaming her brain out. And lightning is popping everywhere at this point. I mean, you could actually you ever been in these electrical storms where you could feel like the air was sizzling? There's so much electricity and just atmospheric unstableness that i mean, it's just sizzling around you that's what it was like you was like you knew you were gonna get struck any any second doug real quick that's yeah. not a really
1: good time to be holding on to a big metal camera on a big no, metal it's tripod not Island, just <laughs> in the tallest tree in the swamp
3: so she swims back across she grabs a second cub and starts doing the same thing and by the way the answer to the store the answer to the question about how they do it so she actually takes the whole cub's head and puts her whole mouth over it. So the when she gets in the water the cub is actually breathing air in her mouth. So she completely gets her mouth around it and gets down in the water and goes with it. Uh, it's really really crazy. So she gets the second cub and she goes gets halfway across with it lightning pops. She turns around, makes it I mean you the look on her face is like I am completely distressed at this point you could, you could see it. When you see the footage, you'll, you'll, you look at, remember to look at the, the mama bear's face. You can see it on her face. She is just, she doesn't know what to do. Um, the storm's freaking her out. She's already under stress about having to cross through all the alligators. You know, that's a huge threat to her and not to mention just the stress of moving these cubs. So she gets second cub lightning pops. She takes it back to the tree, climbs up, licks it dry, comes down tries it again she does this nine times with the second cub she will go halfway across turn around and come back halfway across turn around and come back but she made nine attempts before she finally took that second cub all the way to the to the bank and then you know i watched you know watched him kind of walk off into the sunset well not really a sunset but a, a, a lightning storm <laughs> so yeah 42 days is what it took
2: so there's a couple more things unpack there because i remember talking to you either via text or maybe we just talked i don't remember but weren't there a couple of nights where there were alligators roaring behind you and you were watching snakes swim across i mean that totally is why you go to bed with that whole tense
3: yeah yeah it it was it it really got to the point it freaked me out a lot but yeah so you would sitting in the blind during the day, I would have snakes, you know, water moxins and water snakes, both of those. they would they would swim past the blind and come right up and crawl through the bushes that I had piled up on the blind, crawl through them, you know, and come in under the edge of the blind and swim around your ankles and go out, you know the door. Um, yeah alligators and I would the males would actually sit there and bellow at each other between the blind and the, and the dry ground, the, the route that I wade through every morning, every night, they would sit there and face off each other. Then one morning I had, for some reason, the boars were actually, they're actually out roaming around. They, they either, they either don't hibernate quite as, as intensively as the females do, or they come out earlier or whatever, but I I saw a lot of male bears walking the levee and and swimming through the swamp and that kind of thing. I'm sitting there one day and I see a black bear um, coming down the levee and it comes right down. the. I took the same path every morning. So I'd walk the levee and I cut down through the bushes and the briars to the edge of the water. And so I did that intentionally to kind of to wear a nice path down so I could see my feet every morning walking through the snakes. And he just. You'd see him coming down the levee and then he'd walk straight down my path to the water and he's looking across the water at me. I'm going, I know I've been around black bears enough to know what's getting ready to happen. He is curious. He smells me. He's curious. And he wants to know what the heck that big brush pile is all about. He's coming out here. And sure enough, I didn't even get the thought through my mind. Here he comes. He swam out to the blind. He's trying to get up on the platform that I have the blind strapped to. I'll come back to the platform, but he's trying to get climbing. He's not trying to do me any harm. He doesn't even know I'm in there. He's just curious, but he's about to turn the whole blind over and me, don't me, you know, upside down in the swamp, just trying to be curious. And so I didn't want to, I had bear spray with me, but I didn't want to definitely didn't want to spray that. She'd smell that. I didn't want to do that unless it was absolutely necessary. And I didn't want to make a bunch of racket and scare him off. That would also scare my, my mama bear in the tree. He's, you know, he's 18 inches from my face on the other side of the blind. And I just leaned up to the window and I said, real quiet. I said, Hey bear. He didn't do anything. I said, Hey bear, a little bit louder. And he almost broke a leg trying to get away from me. He took off through that water. He didn't know whether he wanted to hop (laughs) through the water or swim or pull a Jesus and walk on water, but he knew he didn't want nothing to do with that talking brush pile. So, um, anyway, so yeah, all the time. I mean, you just, I had otters that would come out and, um, you know, just try to get up in the brush pile around the blind. Um, but so yeah, it was, um, the snakes and alligators were definitely there and you'd see them, you'd see them feet from the blind every day, every day, back and forth. And that, so that's just kind of wears on you. are like, okay, 12 hours from now, I'm going to be walking that in the dark. Where are these alligators going to be? And like I said, I would play it through my mind, you know, at night, how am I going to deal with this? I had a lot of good plans. I'm glad I didn't have to use any of them. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> back to the platform. So I didn't, I didn't remember. I told you that the swamp kind of starts off dry in early December. And then as the Mississippi floods, you know, the swamps start to fill up and gets really deep. It was probably, I'm going to guess it was halfway through the shoot. Uh, it rained a lot one night and I said, okay, you know, it's, Probably rain three inches and okay, with some runoff, I'm going, to let's just, I'm going to be prepared for five inches of water tomorrow morning. So it's probably going to be water up to my knees, which would mean sitting in a camp chair, just one of those folding camp chairs on the ground. So that means basically, you know, water is going to be at my knees and covering the bottom of the chair, like my butt would be wet. But I was in waiters. I got there, and that wasn't the case at all. Though it was, the water came up about eighteen inches. The the waiters did me no good that day, because I, when I sat in the chair, the water was well over my waiters. It was up up to my un, under my armpits, and so I sat there all day with the water this close to my face. Had the camera up as high as it would go because I couldn't stand up. You can't stand up in the blind. It's, it's only. 54 inches tall. All night, I'm trying to figure out. All, all day, I'm trying to figure out. Okay, how are you going to deal with this problem if the water keeps on coming up? And it was scheduled to come up more in the middle of the night. I was able to go. This this is a this property has um. Well, this has a lot of farming activities going on. Um, they manage a lot of the property for duck impoundments. So there's tractors and there's a maintenance shop and that kind of stuff. So there's tools available to me. Um so went in the shop one night and I spent several hours and I built a platform a metal platform out of scrap aluminum that I could hang it was uh, basically like a a lock on deer stand if you know what those are and your viewers half of your viewers will know it and half of them won't know but it's basically a a metal platform with that leverages itself against the base of a tree so the more weight you put on it it locks itself to the tree so I basically built one a big one of those one that was four and a half feet by four and a half feet wide that I could hook around the base of a cypress tree. So now my challenge is I'm by myself. I've got to get this platform down there and in the water and hook to a tree silently by myself and in the dark next morning. And uh, I was able to do it. It took forever. Sun was well up by the time I, ever got into the blind cause it took way longer than I thought, you know, it wasn't perfect. I had to figure things out anyway. So this platform, what this allowed me to do is as the water level rose, I could move that platform up or down as the water level would go up and down. And that way, you know, I wasn't going to need a snorkel at some point to, to, to film this behavior. Easter Sunday, the, we, with all the, the string of storms, the tornadoes and everything, it dropped nine inches in 24 hours. I came in the next day and everything is covered in water. The blind, everything's covered in water. So we had a total of about six feet of water under that tree. And so, yeah, so it, it got to the point. Now you're having more, more problems. Everything was a problem. Everything, every day that went by, it's like usually you you, you figure out how to solve problems to make the rest of your shoot easier and more time efficient and blah, blah, blah. Every problem that I solved, it's like it created more problems. Every day there's more problems. So now I've got this platform that I can compensate for the height of the water. sounds like great, right? Well, when the water got to six feet deep, I'm six two. So that means the platform is about where my nose or my eyes are, the base of it. How do I get into this platform now? how do I get up and in there? So back to the shop, you know, I'm actually having to, to find things that I can put that will stay sunk on, in, in the water um, that I can step up onto, which was not easy. I mean, I was trying to find milk crates or whatever that didn't work. They broke, you know? So it was just, it was just problem after problem, after problem every morning you just knew something else was you know, You're going to have to deal with something else. So Anyway, so, but we got it done. Um It was the toughest thing I have ever, assignment I've ever done by far by a long shot, but it was absolutely the most rewarding I've, I've ever done too, by a long shot.
0: I couldn't wait to see the footage. And, and there's one thing I want to bring up about it, but when it finally came out, Doug, I got, I got to say, it's like a, you know, a wedding photographer, you got you got one shot to get it right, and when it happened, man, you did a spectacular job. That was incredible.
3: Well, thank you. Just thank the, you.
0: The footage that you were able to get, and the one thing I wanted to mention uh, before Mike comments is uh, I don't know how deep you want to get into this, but you were dealing with a radio collar bear. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah, and yeah. Yeah.
0: In the in the final product, that There's bear no didn't problem. have radio collar on it.
3: Right, right, so if you, yeah if we, you I mean we can talk about mind, that. just
0: touch a little bit on that.
3: you know a lot of um, a lot of productions have different they have different guidelines for filming with all of the, the natural history productions now, you know, they try to do it as ethically as they can, you know, no baiting and you know that kind of stuff, uh, which is great. But there are things that you're trying to film now that there's no way to do it unless there's some type of influence by man. And so these, it wasn't like we radio collared these bears. The the scientists were already, biologists, they were already had these collars radio collared so they could learn their behaviors and try to learn what they could do to help them. And that's just one of the things is that, you know, there was a collar on it on it and that's the only way we knew where that bear was and how many cubs it had um and that was so that was really the only way to do it but they didn't want obviously it's very uh it's a, it's an ugly thing to see a collar on an animal or ear tag of that kind of thing and they actually um allotted thirty two thousand dollars extra in the editing budget just to remove the collar. You know, and those kind of things, I don't have a problem with that because it's, it's not like we added something to the scene that wasn't there. It wasn't like we, we changed the behavior of the animal. You know, we didn't do any of that. Only thing we did was was take off something that was ugly off of something that was already natural. You know, we shot the natural bear in a natural setting, doing a natural behavior we just removed something that shouldn't have been there to begin with is the way I look at. It. So yeah. So the, the collar was removed via, and they did a hell of a job. I'm going to tell you, you can't. Tell. I,
0: I was going to say, yeah, it's crazy. And it's not um, like, you know, with a still you can go in and use a masking tool, that kind of thing yeah. if you want, or, um, But you got to do it frame by frame because you can't. Yeah,
3: people don't understand that. There's 30 frames in every second or 24 frames in every second of video footage. And that was how many minutes long? So multiply that times, you know, 24 frames. Actually, it was more frames than that because I shot that sequence because I did not know how long it was going to take. The actual event was going to take place or what I was going to see take place. I wanted to make sure I had enough time. So I intentionally slowed it down a little bit. Not so much that it look really looks like a slow motion shot, but just to kind of drag it out a little bit. And I always shoot things a little on the slow side anyway. Um just I just think it takes that digital edge off of off of, you know, things. I think I shot it at like 49 frames a second or 48 frames a second, something like that. So yeah, 48 times you got to sit there and make that change and photo, like a Photoshop, like you're fixing a photo. It's the same process, but you got to do it over and over again. That's the reason it's so expensive to do. So it's really got to be something important to, to make it worth doing that.
2: And bottom line is, is if you didn't have the collar, you would have never known where the bear was at. And it's almost impossible to find a bear, Dan, Yeah, Right. If you don't have that kind of Intel. Right. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of cypress trees, right. That could be a potential denning spot. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there's absolutely no human way to figure unless you're lucky and you right. just happen to know, or you just happen to spend your time in this one swamp all the time. Yeah.
3: But had you, had I happened upon this situation, let's say I was just out shooting one day and I happened upon this, it would have been impossible to film without having, previous knowledge of the bear being there to begin with and knowing where I could shoot from, because the way it turned out, the way she, had, when she came out of the tree and, and you can see from the footage and, and y'all can play that, that, that clip, you know, you can actually, I've got an export of just that sequence. If you, that you want to use, um, I think there's actually a Twitter video that they put out behind the scenes of me actually doing some of the stuff. But anyway, when she came out of the tree, you just don't understand how lucky I was and it's nothing but luck because when she came out of the tree with a cub, she had 306 other degrees that she could have gone. You know what I'm saying? She could have turned and went away from me. She could have crawled around the backside of the tree and gone down. I wouldn't have seen any of it. You know, she could have turned her back to me and went away from me in, in any direction. But what she, every time she came down the tree, she turned toward me and, and paused for a split second, almost like showing me like, okay, get, get this good shot of my cub here because I'm getting ready to swim right across the front <laughs> of you. It was luck, 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 a lot of luck. And you know, there was just like, again, i told you so many problems, things that, that went on. There's so many other aspects of this story. and Like this thing goes on and on and, and you can cut out a lot of this jibber jabber, but I'll tell you the really insane thing about this. They had ordered me a CN20, a red Gemini and the Atlas 40 head and the Ronford Baker baby legs. That was going to be the setup.
2: It was. Hold boring. on, before you go too much further with all that, you got to explain what all that is, because nobody probably knows all those little elements. Okay, so a CN twenty CN twenty is
3: it is the thing that all cinematographers drool about and dream about all night. It is a it is, is a uh, lens, a zoom lens that was specifically designed for the natural history world and in cinema. Um, it is 50 millimeters to 1000 millimeters. It has a built-in 1.5 converter built into the lens. So it's matched to that glass. So you could actually have 75 to 1500 millimeters. Um, it's par focal, which means once you set focus at full zoom, you can zoom in and out and it stays in focus. So it's just, everything about it is just a sweet, sweet lens, but it's a very expensive lens. Uh, seventy-two thousand dollars, just for the lens to be exact. The red general, and and
2: with the servo, yeah, the servo is electronic too. So it's not like you're twisting a
3: right. You don't have to. You can do all you know, turn the the lens barrels. You know, the zoom and the aperture and the focus, everything manually. Um, but it's got a it's got what's called a zoom control, a zoom demand. So you can have a thumb, you can control everything with your thumb and stop, start, record with your thumb on the tripod handle as well. Then, then the Red Gemini, Red has several different cameras, but the Gemini is specifically built for low light situations. And obviously swamps are very low light. I had one of those or that was going to be sent in for me to use. The Atlas 40 is simply a, a very large and very heavy, stable uh, pan uh, a video a pan and fluid head, you know, tripod head is all it is. Uh, but it's very big, and it, but it's super stable. You put something on there and it doesn't move. It's just, you're, you're, you get real smooth pans and tilts with it. And then the Ronford Baker baby legs are just aluminum, very large uh, tripod legs that are video legs that are made to support big rigs like the CN20. And the CN20 is very large um, it's 19 pounds, just the lens. So the red Gemini setup up with monitor and everything's probably another, I'm going to guess seven, eight pounds. And then the tripod and head by itself is another 20 some pounds. So you have a big rig. It's a big, that whole rig together, I'm going to guess would be in 110 thousand, hundred twenty thousand $120,000. That was supposed to be that was supposed to come in with the crew of five from the UK. They had rented it, and we were going to have it shipped into me. And you know, they were all going to meet us there. Well, none of that. The the uh, pandemic stopped all that. You know, stopped it like a freight train. So I had no help and no equipment. The equipment never showed up. FedEx, remember, they shut down, and this was stuff was coming in by FedEx. And then once FedEx did start resuming some of their deliveries, obviously they had a huge backlog and, you know, a huge mess to deal with. So everything was going to be delayed. Long story short, I was using my own personal equipment, which was a Red Dragon, which is, you know, it's it's a great red camera, but it's not, um, it's not as sensitive in low light as the Gemini is. Um, so I was at a disadvantage there. Uh, and then I did not have a CN 20. I had a Sigma, a $2,000 lens, a Sigma 60 to 600 is what I shot that sequence with a red Epic dragon and a Sigma 60 to 600 lens and a Sackler tripod. We did it. We did it with that. The crazy thing about this story is that when when I the emergence happened at twelve forty, um on day forty two, and when I got to the house at one thirty, 130, one thirty five, something like that, I actually saw FedEx driving out the driveway. They had delivered it fifteen minutes prior to me get pulling up there. <laughs> it was being delivered while I was shooting the sequence.
0: Man, I can't imagine and- it would have looked any better with <laughs> with any different equipment you, you killed it. you
3: know and that it says a lot it really says a lot for that equipment for that lens especially um i mean you know we all use them now i mean it's the poor boys cn20 basically i use them all the time and the lens quality is there i'm gonna tell you it's there um i will i've eased into sigma very reluctantly um when you know tamron too you know but sigma kind of said we're we 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 can do this. We can step out from front of the crowd. And they did when they started with the art lenses and stuff. And then the sport lenses and the 60 to 600 is, um, I mean, I can't really can't. I mean, it doesn't have all the bells and whistles and it doesn't have the magnification that a CN 20 has, but quality wise it's there. I think.
2: We still haven't mentioned what show this is actually on, I don't
0: think, did we? Yeah, we did at the beginning. The
3: the show is um the show was America the Beautiful and it was the second episode. I forgot the name what the the episode name was um
2: but it's the very first sequence in that second it's episode. It's the
3: opening sequence
2: in the second episode. And it's freaking spectacular. Y'all got to watch it.
0: But watch the whole thing cuz there's stories like this throughout the whole series. But Jason, you had something just a minute ago.
1: Yeah. Just a couple of things real quick. First of all, I didn't know honestly at the time that that was your sequence, Doug. Mm-hmm. And I was just blown away. I showed multiple people. It's like, check oh, this cool. out. Look at how this bears carrying their cubs. You know, it's just, yeah, it's just insane. But anyways. Okay. Um, and then i found out later, obviously, as I was talking to Mike and Ron, but, um, and then I had a question. You kind of blew over one thing that I'm really curious about. Cause you're six foot two. Water's six foot. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming that was the case from the levee to the tree as yeah, well.
3: well, it tapered up. It would get, you know, it would go from the deepest place, which was where the blind was, was, you know, the, the water got about six feet deep. And I'm working within 23 yards of the, of the den. And so that tree was about six feet of water, too, at the base of it. You know, it, it depends. If you'll see there was a lot of cypress knees just under the surface of the water. And if you see her step down in the water, one time she steps down in the water and she has to actually swim because it's too deep for, her. but then the next time you see her, it actually looks like she's standing up and she is, she's actually standing straight up on her back legs and she's got the cub hanging out of her mouth. And she's basically walking on top of cypress knees until she gets to the point where her feet will actually touch the ground. Because it was just solid. Um, I've been in there now. I, I mean, actually shot a, a, an assignment in that exact same location. I mean, right in front of that tree uh, this year for another production um, on alligators. And um, now that it was bone dry in there and I, could t- I know now exactly what she was stepping on. It was just a bed of cypress knees.
2: Tell us what a cypress knee is, because I don't think anybody that's not been to the swamp would know.
3: So, bald cypress trees, being that they they live in you know in water, I mean they actually grow in water. Their root system can be very weak, and so their roots actually will go down in the ground and then go out uh, just under the surface of the ground, and the ends of the they have these little um, ends on their roots that will go up that will come up out of the ground and out of the water. In some cases, there's a lot of, a lot of ideas on what a, the purpose of a cypress knee actually is. Some people, some scientists actually say the, the, that's a way for the tree to breathe. Uh, and then some say that what it does, is slows the water movement around the tree with all the knees sticking up, the water movement slows down, which allows sediment to fall and settle around the roots, which actually gives it more of a base to hold on to, to keep the tree upright, which to me, I think that is probably the, the more justified explanation.
2: Did you have any cypress knees around your blind where you could actually use them to step up onto your platforms?
3: No, I did not. I did not actually. Well, I had some, but they weren't close enough that I could actually step onto, or they weren't tall enough to do me any good. I mean, you're constantly tripping over them when you're walking in. Um, but, I mean, you'll have some that are three inches tall, and you may have some that are three feet tall.
2: That's amazing.
3: It was just, you know, it was, it was crazy. It, it was, um, yeah, it was just a, a crazy, crazy you know, ordeal from start to finish, everything about it.
2: Well, and like you said, it's the it's the most difficult shoot you've ever done, but it's also the most rewarding, which is a constant theme, right? You hear that all the time. Yeah. And now oh, yeah. you're like the only person in the world that's ever shot that, which is kind of cool.
3: Yeah. So the crazy thing about it, so you remember I told you that when you, as soon as you shoot something, then other producers quickly see it and they're like, Oh yeah, I want to do that too, but I'm going to do it a little bit different. I guess it was a few months, two months after I got home off the shoot. So I get a phone call from another producer and they say, I'm such and such with such and such. And tell me about these swamp bears. And uh, of course I'm NDA'd up. I can't talk about it. And, but no no one knew about this. No one. I mean, that was they. They had it under lock and key, and I certainly had not talked to anybody about it. I hadn't been around anybody, and I'm like, they caught me so off guard. I did not. I, I. I was just tripping over my words. I didn't know what to say. I was like, um, you know, um. And they kept, I said, you know, I don't know if I can talk about it. And they said, oh yeah, yeah, we understand. And then they continued to ask me more questions about it. And I said, listen, I said, you know, here, this is the producer. You, you, you talked to her or him. And if they, um, they say I can talk about, you know, I can talk about it. But, um, anyway, they called me and they, they got permission to, to talk to, you know, for me to talk to them about it. And they said, we want you to shoot the same thing again, but we got a different angle on the whole, the whole deal. And I'm like, well, first of all, if big, if I agreed to do this, (laughs) I said, I don't think y'all realize what I've been through. Um, and it's still fresh on my mind. Uh, matter of fact, um, 18 trips to the chiropractor to get my back fixed. So just sitting in that chair. Yeah. I actually, we got it all worked out and I actually shot, the same behavior again, a different tree, different bear, uh, probably 50 miles south of that location. Uh, I did it again the very next year. Um, and that one ended up being about 30, about 30 days, 30, 31 days. But I actually had, well, we actually had a camp, a second camera operator. I had much better blinds, very hard sided, you know, hard, hard sided blinds that nothing could get to me. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, we, you know, it, it had its challenges too. And we can talk about that later when that, after that one airs, cause it had its own problems. Uh, only person has done it and done it twice. So.
2: And the blinds that he had built were pretty cool. We'll have to put some pictures up in the, in the show notes.
1: But I just don't know if people have an appreciation for what it takes to sit in a blind for eight hours, let alone 14.
3: Yeah. It's, um, it's and hard. not
1: be able to stand up and yeah. not, and being in the water, and having the snakes, but I mean, that is insane. That is yeah. incredible. That <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want to do it let for me any t- amount of money. Oh, to be t- quite t- yeah. honest with you, I'm just—I
3: don't have to tell you how many times it went through my brain. Like, okay, screw this, screw it, I'm done. I mean, but I've never quit anything in my life, and I wasn't about to try. You know, and I, the bottom line is, I knew there was there was cubs in that tree, and they had to come out at some point. That's the only thing that kept me going. You know, if this is going to happen how well it turns out is a whole different story, but this is going to happen. It's just a matter of me being here. And so, you know, like I said, having that producer that, you know, she would chat with me for hours, you know, just texting, you know, which helped, you know, me mentally, um, you know, lots of friends you know, uh, and new Ron and Mike would, you know, text me and, you know, what's going on and that kind of stuff. Um, see what people do on Facebook, you know, cause I had cell signals. So that helped a lot. Yeah. Let
1: alone not knowing if it happened at night. I mean, yeah, you just yeah. sat there the right. whole time and it could have been a nighttime thing. And then, you know, yep. you learn, but you know,
3: yep. and yeah, and that, and that right. does happen. I learned from experience the next year that that does happen. Um, and yeah, so I, that was actually one of the things I would think about was, you know, did she move them tonight? Don't know don't know if I'm going to sit and watch an empty hole all day tomorrow.
2: So <laughs> Nobody knew how this was going to go down. Right. But when, when Maria tells you show up a week early, you know, that th- when you get that information, your thought process is probably like, okay, well, if I'm here a week early, then I've got that safety net. But I also, this is only going to be 10, 15 days. And then 10, 15 days you're into it. And, and yeah, you're committed. You can't, you don't want to leave. You're, you've already spent this much time. So I just can't imagine if you knew it was going to be 42 days when it was 15 days, you might've been like, yeah, I'm not doing this, but to stick it out for four. And then for every day that you spend in there, it's gotta be like, okay, you're just getting more invested. Right? So for sure, you're not going to leave. That thing could have been a hundred days and you would have stayed. Well, the other thing I would say too, and as with your story is, um, With these BBC or UK producers, these production company people, it's a blessing and a curse sometimes to have them along, right? Because sometimes they're just doing their job and they want to be helpful. But a lot of times it can kind of be a pest because you're trying to get your thing done and they're like tapping you on the shoulder. Hey, did you see this over here? Or did you get that over there? And so the blessing is you did not have to put up with any of that. But the curse on this one is it sounds like you could have used some help. For the DIT or the downloading of all the stuff every night, making sure batteries are charged, giving you a little bit of like a relief to have somebody sit in there for an hour or whatever, just so you could stretch your legs. There was none of that. So you, the curse was, you would have been way best, way more. It would have been way better if they would have been with you.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it would just been able to relieve me somewhat. I mean, like I say, it, it, you don't realize how just having a little bit of communication, you know, five minutes of being able to talk with another human, you know, just a way to kind of decompress and talk about the day and, you know, whatever, or, or give me that extra 15 to 20 minutes of sleep, you know, it, you know, it added up for sure yeah, it, it, it was, it was nuts. You know, one of the other things I'll tell you real quick that, that went through my brain constantly was I was always replaying. Well, I was always thinking about how it was going to go down when it did go down. So I'm thinking about, okay, I, it's just me. It's just me, one camera. And I, you know, you got to think about I'm not just I'm not just shooting this one behavior. I have got to get enough footage to build a sequence by myself in one shot. So, I'm thinking about the wides, I'm thinking about the mids, I'm thinking about the tights, I'm thinking about the detail shots, but I don't know how this behavior is going to go down, so I can't say, okay, well, I need to get you know, I need to get her swimming across with this, you know, cub first and need, then need to get a, 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 the second go round. need to get, you know, a tighter shot and then they need to go for the wide shot. So I, you know, I had to, I had to kind of come up with a plan of exactly how I was going to do that. I also, I actually put a cannon, uh, what did I shoot it with? A DSLR, 1DX. Yeah. 1DX, Mark.
2: Yeah. Mark two or mark three whatever it was the last one
3: mark two yeah one DX mark two yeah the last one um i had that set up with a 20 mil lens and 24 millimeter lens and i had that locked off and that was pointing that was right beside the red and so i had that set up locked off and that was always going to be my wide shot you know so i just knew when this started happening all i had to do is reach over there, hit record and then i forget about it you know pre-focus it on the tree make sure I have a little bit of depth of field, forget about it. I got the wide shot. Then all I had to do is concentrate on getting that, getting the tight, the detail, and then the mid shot. And and then that, that took off, you know, a fourth of the problem right there by having, having the, um, the lock off shot already. So, but it played through my mind, and, you know, and then don't forget to hit record. Don't forget to hit record. I mean, I would actually stick little pieces of tape all over my monitor so that i would have to remove the piece of tape i would have to physically remove it to be able to see to shoot and that reminded me to hit record i mean because it sounds stupid sounds silly but when you're that tired and your brain is that gone i could have easily done it i mean i've i've forgotten to hit record when i was fully functional you know um that doesn't happen much anymore i mean that was kind of a, a rookie thing but it's definitely anybody that says they hadn't done it in their line but um but yeah I, those little mistakes is what i was so scared of, of making was the small mistakes which could have screwed it all up
2: oh it's happened to me not hitting record i've done a, a couple of times and you just and you get so excited because what you're about ready to shoot you're like you hit the double press or you, I don't know, just something stupid happens. And I could see that being a, the good thing I think for you bad for the bear was that lightning storm, because if she went back and forth so many times, that probably gave you more opportunities. It gave me more
3: opportunities. Right. Yeah. So it was tough, you know, and I was having, you know, there was no autofocus, so I was having to follow focus all this and I knew I had one shot at this. So, uh, I had to treat every, th- every moment like I'm not getting a second chance. Even though I did get a second chance, I had to treat every moment like this is it. You got to nail it. So trying to be smooth, you're trying to pan at just the right speed, you know, you're trying to hit nail focus the whole time. Because like I said, it's such a short window. All of it's got to be in focus. I can't I can't screw up. So there was just it was a lot weighing on my shoulders.
2: Thank God for peeking.
3: no doubt. Yeah. Mm Because it damn sure wasn't depth of field that saved my butt. I can promise you that. Because it was dark, buddy. It was dark. (laughs) There was no, I was shooting wide open. I was shooting at uh,
2: 5.6. Right, because that's all that lens will go to. You're paying $72,000 for a lens, but the wide, the opening is 5.6 5.6 at the widest
3: well i didn't shoot it with the, the
1: well, he N20. wasn't shooting with that line. no i was shooting
2: yeah, with all of that 60, to, 60 no, it was 600. To 600. but even with the 60 to 600
1: yeah that's as
2: wide as it'll go yeah, it's five, six, five, right?
3: six, yeah. yeah five six and six three so if you're on the 600
2: well i'll tell you what sig sigma needs to at 600 it's what six point something at 600 six, six three six three
3: i think yep.
2: six three i think Sigma needs to send you a whole crate of those I think so
3: too. <laughs> I think so, too.
2: Have you talked to Sigma? Do they understand that you actually shot that whole sequence with that Not line? yet.
3: Not yet. Maybe, y'all, maybe, you need, maybe you need to drop them an email. It'd be kind of weird for me to mention it to them. Maybe you should drop them an email. <laughs>
2: yeah, no, I, I will definitely.
3: Red definitely wants the story. They've already contacted me.
2: Oh, I bet. Red used to do a whole like YouTube series or something about different filmmakers. Well, they've
3: got a whole new thing and going. This would be awesome. They've got a whole new um, platform now. And it's um, it used to be called Shot on Red. But now, uh, I think that's the one, might be the one you were talking about, Shot on Red. But then uh, the new thing yeah. is, um, it's all about the behind-the-scenes stories and stuff of different projects and everything. And and um, yeah, they've already reached out to me. And I'm, I'm going to put something together. I was giving my boys at, at, at Wild and Exposed first shot at it, though.
0: No, i appreciate it it's it's not often that if i if i think about the times in my past where i've waited two years to have a conversation i think i've forgotten about <laughs> most of them before that conversation ever took place but this one i wasn't going to let it go so when i knew you were up there shooting with mike i was like okay you got to set this up we got to talk yeah not a problem i glad, glad we got it
2: I don't know how you did it with the whole blind thing and not falling asleep. Because I will tell you, I've done a lot of shoots with Doug, and he is the king of the mid afternoon nap. Right? Because we get up early and we go shoot for that early light, get get all and you get a lot of activity. That's just the best time to shoot. Then you get the midday like bad light, just hot. Especially if you're in the swamps, it's just hot. It's perfect time to go back and take an hour long little siesta, and then you go back out in the evening. And and Doug can, you know, we'll show back up wherever we're staying. He'll eat something, and he is gone. And he's and then he wakes up all chipper, like ready to like skip to the next location, ready to go. I just can't imagine you doing this without your midday nap. You know, your hour long little siesta for forty two days. It's crazy. I don't know if I could have done it because that falling asleep that just, you know, it's like sitting in class when you were in school after lunch.
3: You know, it's the little things that you started to appreciate. So, like, I would actually schedule my snack time and my lunch time. I, and you you would schedule it. So, like, I was like, okay, at 9 30, I can eat, you know, my first pack of Cheez Its. And then at, you know, <laughs> eleven forty-five, I get to start eating my ham sandwich. And you would like it gave you things, little goals to achieve, it's like fifteen more minutes. And I get to wear that sandwich out. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, I mean, it's the little things.
3: Today, yeah. Yeah.
0: I think you might be able to work a sponsorship from Cheez Its also. <laughs> yeah. Cheez Its and Sigma. Doug Gardner brought to you by Cheez Its and Sigma. And Sigma. <laughs> oh, man.
2: And I will tell you, he doesn't show up on a shoot without his Cheez Its. <laughs> nope. They're everywhere.
0: Nope. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Doug, I can't thank you enough for taking yeah, the time man. and again for for letting us have this conversation i i'm excited for you that when i saw it 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 was everything i imagined it was going to be and then some to be honest well, thank with you it. appreciate it so
2: yeah i don't have the disney whatever i don't know if it's on apple tv or whatever i just don't have that what a subscription but i was at a buddy's who did and i was like we're watching this because i knew it was that episode and i was blown away i just you know you get chills just know what you went through and, and then you get to see the footage and it, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I just get chills watching it. It's so cool.
1: Yeah. After hearing the story, it gives the whole, the whole footage, a whole new level of, of color and respect for sure, man. Congratulations, buddy. Well, I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you.
2: Yeah. I want to go watch it again right now.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, I'm too actually. <laughs> cool.
2: So what's next, Doug? what What's next on your, uh, on your agenda?
3: um well actually i am going uh next week to start a waterfowl project for the atlantic flyway um and i'm I'm actually starting south carolina down the on our coast of of georgetown start filming you know new early arrivals on the uh for the the winter migration and then i'm going to drop down to georgia and going to grab some footage down there and then i'm going to be Um, all the way up the, the, um, near the North Atlantic working on, on ducks, geese and swans up there as well. So just trying to capture as much waterfowl on the Atlantic flyway as possible. Um, And
2: you do workshops up there too, right? Yeah, I do.
3: I'm actually going to, uh, while I'm up there shooting this time, um, I'm actually going to do my workshops during, during that time. I'm going to have a break. And so I'm going to do my workshops during my break um so instead of coming back home so
2: so if anybody's interested you can just go to doug's website or you can send us an email or send us a dm on instagram or whatever but if you want to do some really cool waterfowl stuff doug's the person to go with he's a certified waterfowl nut like i said earlier it's it's kind of annoying sometimes because you're trying to get to a place and he sees a duck I and mean, you got to stop
3: <laughs> oh things were going to get real when mike and i were We're in, uh, we were up in Northern Montana um, working on this conservation project and uh, things were getting ready to get real, real because Steven came in one night and said there was two trumpeter swans on one of these little ponds on this property. And I was like, wait a minute, hold on. What'd you say? (laughs) And we've been out filming bears and elk and all kinds of crazy stuff, moose and, and Nobody said anything about waterfowl. And so that was things were getting ready to change for me. I was like, um, y'all going to do bears today. I'm going to do swans. <laughs> so, um, but no, it, they actually, there were swans up there, but yeah. Um, Mike and I both got to go back in January and finish working on that project, which is, I'm actually really excited about that project, Mike, because um, we already know that it's supposed to open this door to a much bigger uh, platform of 32 other uh, conservation films is this, this is supposed to be kind of the first of uh, which is a pretty big deal so i mean that's that's years of work for for both of us so.
2: we'll be walking around with canes
0: yeah for sure i'm gonna scan that ticket and maybe we'll get that gimbal you guys have been wanting to get and then Ronald jump in on that too. Hey, come on, man. Come on. Jason Jason can because he was being negative Nelly earlier. That's right. Doesn't well, that's think true. I'm gonna, You're out of the wheel. Doesn't think I'm gonna win it. <laughs> I've
2: learned learned my lesson. And by ticket he means lottery ticket. Yeah. Yeah.
0: The odds are ever in my favor. So
2: if anybody's gonna win out of all of this, it's gonna be you.
0: Well, I'm the only one that buys a stupid ticket. Well, that's part of it. <laughs> And th- and then the other thing about, uh, Doug that we didn't, we kind of glossed over it a couple of times, but he will be in Wyoming, does a, a great video workshop in Northern Wyoming also. So if you're, if you're into the video, you're not going to have a better wildlife and, and scenery opportunities than the workshop he's got. And we'll put a link to Doug's workshops in the show notes and, so Sounds we can good. point you point you right But to you him. need
2: to get on your mailing list too, right, Doug? Because I do you send out a list, you know, if you have a spot opening or something, you'll you'll send it out to the email. So yeah. yeah if y'all just want just, to get on Doug's it's list, it's better to just send. to get
3: on the list because usually they they sell out in a few hours from the time I send the, the works the emails out to everybody. So it's better just to get on the on the mailing list that way you have a shot at getting in.
2: And what is the uh websiteuggarddner should they go to
3: douggarddner dot Doug Doug com
2: and then what is the youtube
3: uh the natural history channel
2: and then what's your instagram handle
3: i have no idea <laughs> i think it's i love jesus i don't know no i think
1: it's, I
2: love um, jesus <laughs> i think it i think it's um I think it's, is it Doug Gardner Wildlife? I think it's, Doug Gardner, it's Doug Gardner Wildlife. Gardner Wildlife. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah.
3: All right.
2: So you obviously don't check that account too much.
3: Well, I look at it, but I never look at the, the name oh, of it. Oh, your handle? Yeah.
2: All right. All right. So you can get to Doug if you are dying to go on a trip. Send a DM there. But best thing to do is just get him your email. Yep. you have like a sign-up sheet or yeah. something yeah, on your website? Could,
3: yeah, you can sign up on the website, yeah. I'm actually redoing, um, getting ready to launch a new website to just kind of a, a, revamp the old one. Uh, it's just, just because it's uh, easier for me to change it and update it on the road. Um, it's one of those things, you know, websites, if you, if you don't do it a lot, you kind of forget exactly how to go in and manipulate it and all that kind of stuff. And then it takes you forever. Cause you got to kind of relearn, relearn, you know, how it's put together. So, um, I actually switched over to Squarespace and it was, I mean, I rebuilt my whole website in about four or five hours. Don't say that.
0: I don't, I don't, that's what I keep telling
2: Ron. Yeah. He died. Just (laughs) get a Squarespace site and you can have it going.
3: Yeah. I'm in smug mug right now. And it, I mean, it's, it's been great. I mean, their image, their their quality, the the platforms, everything is great. I mean, no problems whatsoever. Never had a website problem, uh, with them. And, um, so no problem fault of theirs. It's just, it's a bit complicated. Uh, if you don't make changes a lot, you forget like how to do it and you have to kind of go back and relearn it. And it, and it's not exactly, I wouldn't call it user-friendly. So, um, I mean, you, you got to kind of study it on what does what it's not. It's not um, intuitive, I guess is the word. So, but Squarespace, I mean, I literally, I mean, I literally got on there and just, I think I watched one little five minute video and, uh, on YouTube and I was off and running with it. So.
0: Yeah. That's kind of what I'm looking at. And I'm with smug mug also. It's, it is great because you can kind of set it and forget it and let people do what they want to do with your, you know, as far as buying your images, but.
3: And you can do all that same stuff yeah, with Squarespace.
0: Yeah. Speaking of this will be out before Christmas. If any of you need a, an idea for a kid's book, I do have. Let me tell you about my mom. It's the first in a in a series of of four books that'll be coming out over the next few years. So send me an email. Hit me up.
3: Awesome. Bring hey, when you Link come Cumber to um, when you come to Cody. Bring one. Oh uh, yeah, for sure. And I'll get it for
2: you. Uh, it's an awesome book. Everybody needs to go check it out. If you got a kid in your life. What do you, would you say the age? I mean, I loved it. I would buy one for me, but what is the perfect age?
0: Honestly, my grandson's he's six months old, but he he looks at the pictures. And so you can, you can go basically from one to 14. There's facts in there that every adult that I've had read the book, there are things in there that they didn't know about specific species that are represented. So it's uh, you know, one to one to 14, you're going to learn something for sure but it's, it's probably, you know, four to four to 12 is probably the target audience.
2: So what we're going to do is you can find that book until Ron gets his new Squarespace site up and running. (laughs) You can find that book on the wild and exposed site. So you can just go purchase that book and then Ron will fulfill it from, from my own.
0: Well, thanks again, Doug. Thanks, Jason and Mike. And thank you all for listening to another great episode of Wild and Exposed Podcast. You've been listening to the Wild and Exposed Podcast. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating and a review. And make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're
1: gonna make it someday. Nothing's gonna get in our way.
3: We will be the biggest band in town. We'll go.